Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, the one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time, Jay Ferguson, Chris Murphy, Patrick Pallon, and Andrew Scott, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow super fan hosts. I'm Rob, this is Ken. Ken, ah, dreams do come true, my friend. How are you? <laughs> I'm feeling good. First off the bat, um, Rob, uh, happy anniversary, dear. It is That's the, right, dear. the second anniversary of this <laughs> podcast. I don't want to do any uh, like you know shoulder tapping too much here. But I feel as though we've got ourselves an awesome anniversary gift. In this case, dear listeners, uh, for this particular episode, we are talking to the to the one member of the band who we've had our sights set on since the very beginning to talk to, but who's uh, generously been holding out to be the last member of the band uh, to be interviewed by Sloancast. Welcome on board, Jay Ferguson. Great to have you. <laughs> That's Hello. right. Hello. Hi, guys. Happy anniversary. I'm very happy to be... I was holding out until the second anniversary. I was going to hold it to the fifth right. and just see how far you guys could get, but I thought, okay, I'm going to give in and, and join you on your second. So thanks for having me and uh, happy anniversary. I hope you're both having excellent uh, cake and such. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. This is just like incredible. Uh, you know, with this episode, we've now kind of had all the principal players on the show. It's unreal. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, this is great. And I hope the listeners really enjoy this conversation as well. So, um, yeah, I want to just quickly mention off the top, congratulations. Probably by the time this comes out, perhaps the album will be either almost out or out. Uh, Sloan Steady, uh, the 13th mm -hmm. album. So just want to say congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Thanks. Yes, it was a long... It was a long gestation. Like I just realized the other day we started recording the drums for the record like two years ago. Mm. So it kind of has taken, it's basically the album, the drums are having the two year anniversary. Uh, so the <laughs> cast is basically having the two year anniversary. Uh, yeah. Thanks very much. And I heard uh, some of the uh, Sloan preview podcast and uh, yes, mm. thanks for all your kind words and your, uh, and your very uh, meticulous analysis of the uh of everyone's songs it's very it's very flattering yeah. and and appreciated and i'm glad that this is a good uh document for uh people of the future in quotation marks to uh yeah. unearth <laughs> hey man well thanks for listening and yeah feel free to correct uh, any quibbles oh yeah i've been writing down tons of stuff so yeah. <laughs> lots of notes yeah. awesome man well it no, is no, it no. is truly <laughs> yeah truly a pleasure my friend um i want to just quickly say and possibly embarrass you right off the top before we sort of deep dive uh -oh. um I want to say thanks because my first show in mid 96, not only obviously was the show impactful and like changed my life, but of the of the guys in the band, I actually only met you initially. You were the first guy I met. I don't know if I ever told you this. Okay. I, I saw you after the show and I said to my buddy, cause I was brand new. I was like, which one is that? What's that guy's name? <laughs> like, that's Jay. So I went over to you and it's like, Hey Jay. And you might've thought maybe I'd met you before cause I was being super friendly. But uh, I was so blown away, and I bought the sit up single flame seven inch. Oh, right on! And um, and you signed it, and that interaction, you were so cool and so friendly, had almost an equal impact to seeing the show, and it kind of set the groundwork for my fandom all all through these years. So thank you for that. And you know, not everybody has a favorite band who's endeared this long and stayed this kind of quality. Mm. Um, and you know, your signature still remains the only one on my seven. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, just wanted off the top, just say a quick thanks for. for That's me. amazing. Now, where was that show? Rob? Was that at the uh, at the yeah, was, house or whatever? Was it here in Toronto? Uh, it was U of W at. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the event. Oh, Fed Hall. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I remember. There's a, I think there's a photo of it in the one chord box set. Like it takes up a page or yeah, like a, yeah, yeah, above the stage. Really cool looking shot. 
Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. Right on. So it was that show. Oh, that's a good memory. So yeah, you've been along with us for a long time. So I appreciate it. That's yeah, great. Man. That's great. I, I like testing the memory of you know people we're interviewing to a certain extent here because oh, you've no. done how many hundreds of shows <laughs> over the years, right? So and, yeah. and you're you're the guy who's typically the first one to be out there with the fans after the show, chatting and, and mixing it up and whatever else. So I find it you know I find it very impressive that you do have you know memories of very particular events, but the the one thing that stands out in my mind from our first interaction is not the interaction itself because it's very brief but it was at my i think it was my second or third official sloan show in ottawa on october 16th 2001 and that was the show at which they found a jay doppelganger and brought him up on stage <laughs> to play uh based on underwhelmed i'm not sure if you recall that but i, I remember being very impressed at the quality of doppelganger they found um, it was about a nine, eight point five or nine of ten. Oh, really? That's a pretty good. That's a good. Uh, uh, that's a good score. Uh, I think he was he from Kingston. I feel like I met a guy who was from Kingston. I have a photo of him, so that makes sense. So if there was an Ottawa show, maybe he traveled there or something like that. But yeah, I remember that uh, on stage, and I think I've met him a couple times through the years. Yeah. And then I think he was just getting tired of it by like the third time I met him. Someone's like, hey, you're, and he's like, who cares? You know, basically just like probably the last Sloan show he ever went to. He's like, give me a break. I'm tired of being compared to that dumb, dumb. Uh, anyhow, I do remember. So that was your first show. That, no, that, well, yeah, that, that yeah. was the, I think that was my second or third, uh, my second or third official oh, okay, show. Right. I don't, Sorry, I yes. don't count my first show as being an official show. That was the, uh, the, the ominous uh, uh, Canada Day uh, 1998 performance in which you f flew from Toronto on the same day to get there, but I was sort of back back right, in the right. bushes. But yes, okay, yeah, that doesn't really count. Yeah, we flew. I remember that was the footage we used, and she says what she means. That's video, right. yes, uh, flying yes. between there. We had a rented jet, our most uh, opulent moment ever, I suppose. Yeah. Two shows, private jet. That's right. I want to <laughs> say that Canada Day show, which was broadcast on Much Music, which we've had clips on our Instagram. Okay. was a wild one for you guys. I remember you like you were rolling around doing somersaults and like <laughs> making what? faces at Yeah, I swear man. It's it's a, it's a it's a wild one. I remember at the time thinking like, man, these guys have it's a great show, but obviously I don't know if it was just like a long day or something and you guys were just like having fun from exhaustion or something, but right, right. yeah, it's a, it's a pretty wild one anyway. Whatever. Right. I, I appreciate I'm, I'm normally I feel like I'm up on footage of our band because <clears throat> I used to sit and watch it all the time. Uh, but yeah, I haven't watched that in a while. But uh, yeah, OK, I take your it's worth it. It's worth a rewatch. It's, okay. pretty, it's pretty great. There's a lot going on. OK, but uh, anyway, going back in time, getting in the time machine, if you will, the other guys, when they've been mm -hmm. on the show, have been gracious enough to kind of regale with uh regale us with their sort of like birth to Sloan story. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as much as you're comfortable talking about, you know, like if, if we could maybe go back and talk about, you know, where you were born and early memories and early musical memories and, and that kind of stuff, like, you know, school and yeah. getting into playing music. I remember in my brother's documentary that he made years ago, yeah. the quote about wanting to initially be a translator at the, oh, was it? At the <laughs> Did World I say Man? that? Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Uh, yeah. United Nations, I should say. Yeah, what a weird. It's it's funny. I often think that when you know young kids, when they're like six or seven years old, they have these wild ambitions. Like, I'm gonna be, you know, uh, you know, a pathologist, or you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and be an archaeologist in you know some obscure country. Mm -hmm. 
And mine was, yeah, I'm going to go and work, live in New York and be a translator at the United Nations. And that quickly, like in, a, in, our, in the school that I went to, we had to take French from grade one to grade 12. And then we also had to, by grade nine or 10, also take German and or Latin. And uh, once I started like uh, getting into, I was like, "There's no way I'm going to be a translator." <laughs> like, way too. Because my question, like, yeah, were yeah. you multilingual at the time? No, no way, no, not at all. <laughs> like my French right now is so poor, even though I had it for 12 years. No, so I mean, I was the only guy. I was the only member of Sloan who was born in Halifax. I guess everybody else. Chris was born in PEI. Chris or Patrick was born in Ireland. Andrew was born in Ottawa, but I'm the only one who was born in Halifax, and I grew up. In, for the most part, downtown Halifax, I lived outside the city, like in a, in a, a remote, I don't know if it was that remote, it was like a small town about 45 minutes outside of Halifax, but like the side of a, side of a highway, basically, mm-hmm. uh, called Hubbard's oh. until I was about five. And then my, my, my parents' marriage didn't work out. And my mom and I, I, I have no, I'm an only child, no siblings. And then we moved into Halifax into apartment, into an apartment in downtown Halifax where I lived for forever. You know what I mean? Uh, with my mom and went to a school that was like 10 minutes away. And, and anyhow, I don't know how, how boring you want me, <laughs> how far you want me to go into that oh, stuff. But this anyhow. is great. This is yeah, great. But maybe, yeah. maybe just for Halogonophile uh, listeners out there, that's not the yeah, word yeah. I just invented, but what? That's, like, I think that's, yeah, I think that's proper. Yeah. What, how, so a whereabouts in downtown were you and b what was it like growing up in downtown halifax in like the 70s what was that feeling like it was pretty idyllic like i lo- i i mean it's funny talking to especially chris and patrick who for the most part grew up in the suburbs yeah. which is an experience that i never had like i grew up where you just walked everywhere we didn't have a car you know you could you had everything you could want or anything i could imagine that i wanted mm-hmm. you know what i mean i wasn't i wasn't uh jonesing for a life in a in a different area but i I love like there's beautiful parks you know what i mean like right downtown and i I don't know i I, um don't know how to really describe it i loved i really got into to music i think in the 70s sort of on my own based on music that i liked hearing on the radio but also i had a babysitter whose name was Rhonda joy who was heavily into kiss and aerosmith Mm -hmm. And so she was like, Hey, you got to get into kiss. And I was like, Oh really? What record should I buy? And she was like, you got to get destroyer. And I was like, okay. Even, even though like, I feel like this is probably about 1977. So destroyer had been out already for a year. Chris was already like bored with kiss probably by this point. Like he was already like, he had dressed to kill and that was his pinnacle or maybe kiss alive, you know? So by the time I got into kiss, he was probably you know, on the way out of them or, or didn't think they were as cool. And I remember, yeah, so I went to like uh, Simpsons, like a department store with my mom and I asked if I could buy Destroyer. And she was like, what the hell is this? Like, I think she was a little bit, you know, uh, taken aback, like thinking it's whatever, satanic heavy metal or something like that. When Although when you look back on it now, it's so tame, you know what I mean? Yeah, and so she let me buy it. And I remember showing my babysitter, uh, who I had in the summer, you know, the next day I was like, I got it. She was like, yeah, it's pretty cool. So anyhow, I just wanted to impress my babysitter, Rhonda Joy. And uh, so I kind of got into Kiss and I had, you know, uh, ABBA records and, and stuff like that. But, you know, and, and competing with, with music uh, up till, you know, 1980 would have been sports. I loved playing baseball. I didn't really get into playing organized sports or anything like that. The school I went to, we hardly had, like we had a volleyball team. We had a fencing team. Right. 
that Matt Murphy, I went to school with Matt, the same school with Matt Murphy from like grade one to grade 11. And then he left for grade 12. We had a soccer team and stuff like that, but we didn't have baseball or football or anything like that. And I love baseball. I think, you know, I was really interested in that. I thought like, oh, maybe I could be a professional baseball player, which is of course preposterous or whatever. You know, I was into that and I was really into like collecting like comics and things like that. I was really into that kind of pop culture stuff when I was younger. And then um, by the time, basically in 1980, like when John Lennon died, that was the catalyst for really getting into music. Everything else went by the wayside. You know what I mean? Like sports and stuff like that or, or other interests. And yeah, wanting to be a uh, translator at the United Nations, that, that went by the wayside. That's when I really got into music more seriously. And because you could hear when John Lennon died, there was Beatles records mm -hmm. being played you know, 24-7 on the radio. And I, I knew very little of the Beatles except for I had Sgt. Pepper's, I had that album, and I think that's it, really. And I had Band on the Run by McCartney or Wings. So that really opened up a, a world of new interest for me, uh, getting into the Beatles. And and, uh, and then that led me to working at a used record store and stuff like that. So that would have been the next the next stage, basically. Awesome. Did you have friends at the time who were like musically inclined or, or was this sort of, you know, this is sort of like your main inspiration in terms of getting really hardcore into music and kind of maybe, were you collecting or was that more kind of when you started working at the store? That's kind of more when I started working at a store or whatever, but yeah, no, I wasn't really like, I had friends who liked music and we all liked Rolling Stones songs or something. Like I knew a couple of songs or whatever and yeah, yeah. ABBA or, or, uh, or like I said, kiss and stuff like that but um it was it was so casual like it wasn't we i didn't play music i didn't have a guitar yeah. i had no musical talents like i didn't show any <laughs> inclination towards uh music at all and i didn't know anybody who really played music except like friends who were forced to learn the piano or matt murphy who had violin lessons that was about it so there was no you know other than like dressing up on halloween with a tennis racket right. you know miming you know what i mean i had no real music uh musical inclination until uh i mean actually you know it's argu arguable that i that i have music that i have musical inclination even now but like uh when i really got into the beatles records what, what happened next was there was um i just started buying their records because they were everywhere and in june of 1981 so about six months after john lennon died there was a local record store called old dan's record that was about a block and a half from the apartment building i lived in uh which was called park victoria and um, it was in downtown Halifax on Dresden Row. And my mom saw a poster for a thing they were having called Beetlefest. And I didn't know what it was or whatever, but she told me about it. She was like, hey, you know, there's this thing on Saturday, uh, this record store, and it's called Beetlefest. And I think they have Beatles records for sale and showing Beatles movies on a TV. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to it. So I went and it's... Uh, I remember meeting the owner and some other friends of mine from school uh, went as well who were you know, Beatles fans as well. It was like a, a world opening up. They had like, I'd never seen All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, or I'd never mm. seen the Plastic Ono Band record and stuff mm. like that. I didn't know about that. And then there was a young guy who was 17 who worked at the store and his name was Frank Brady, who we all got to know for years and years uh, later after that. And he was 17 at the time and had a massive Beatles collection. And he had it on display in this back room. And um, they were just like, it had a TV set up, like a, I think it was like a black and white TV and playing like Hard Day's Night and Help on VHS or whatever. And uh, 
anyhow, I basically hung out there for an hour or so. And I went home and I was like, I want to go back. <laughs> and I ended up just like going back and hanging out at the store. And I kept going back to that store. Like I bought some records there that day. And, and I have photos of the day, which is really exciting for me. Uh, Frank Brady, a few years ago, he found a bunch of photos from that day. And there's photos of me there. And I'm so happy they exist. Like, because it, it was a really, without sounding corny, it was a pivotal moment for me. That's and so just, great. Yeah. And, and anyhow, I kept going back to that store and basically just like hanging around on Saturdays or whatever. And then finally, I was in the store maybe August of that year. And there was a guy, a teenager who worked at the store. Uh, who ended up whatever he was playing i remember he was playing like a monty python record and the owner george who i knew already uh, came in and he was like hey can you take off the comedy record i just want to play music in the store mm. and the teenager the guy was just like you have no taste and george was like you know what <laughs> you're fired <laughs> meanwhile i'm standing there like just looking through records and i was like Hey, do I, this is really uncomfortable. Are you like the only I, other person there? Yeah, I think there, might, there was no one else in the store. I knew both of them. And it's like, do I just walk out quietly or do I just pretend I can't hear it? Or do I, anyhow, so the guy, the teenager is like, okay, whatever. And leaves the store and I'm just standing there. And then George just turns to me and was like, do you want a job? And I was like, Okay, I, I might have to ask my mom, but okay. And I, so I was twelve at that point, and then I worked there for four years, basically. So that that was a big that was a big uh, introduction working there, just into into music, and it really turned me on to tons of, you know, like I said, I knew I had friends at school who were really into certain types of music, but working at Old Dan's really sort of opened my eyes to a lot of like records by the Kinks or the Who yeah. or like. Nick Lowe and that stuff and Elvis Costello and stuff. And the, the other sidebar thing that I would say is at school, I remember in 1980, uh, sort of grade seven, 1980, 81, really hearing punk for the first time, British punk mm. and, and like the Ramones and stuff like that. And that was all as a result of Matt Murphy, right? Uh, mm. because Matt Murphy, his family was from England and Matt had an older brother named Luke Murphy, who was maybe about four years older than us. So Matt would get all of the British punk records sent to him by his British relatives. So he had, you know, he had never mind the uh, never mind the bollocks before everybody else. He had Ramones records before anybody, you know, in grade six knew who they were, and uh, records by Sham sixty nine and nine 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 and like the Piranhas, and then also the Specials and Selector and stuff like that. So he and his brother basically infiltrated our school with all of that music because there was no there wasn't a lot of outlets to hear that kind of music so i didn't have those records but i remember borrowing you know ramones uh you know the the ramones it's a live record and taping that and the specials and stuff like that so in concert with working at old dan's and getting into a lot of older music i was basically getting a, an education in in more like punk and underground music, or what would be considered underground music at that time, uh, from Matt Murphy's record collection, which was sent to him by his relatives and handed down from his older brother, older brother Luke. So those were two real eye-opening things that got me really into music and excited about music. Mm. And it really, you know, it, it took off from there. I ended up getting an acoustic guitar, like maybe Christmas of 1982, and I could could not play. I was terrible. My mom was like, six months later, is like, either you're going to get rid of that or you have to take some lessons. Right. And then I went and took some lessons with 
uh, a guy uh, named Phil Black, who's also ended up being Chris's guitar teacher, unbeknownst to me at the same time or whatever, which was a funny, uh, funny connection. Anyhow, that's, that was sort of the early days of, I know it's a little long winded, but that was the early days of me getting into music. And, and it really, you know, not, I don't want to say like changing my life, but it really uh, cemented an, an interest that I've had you know, ever since then, right. basically, you know, just coming back to old Dan's records for a second and assume, yeah. assuming that the name mm-hmm. followed the Lightfoot song and not vice versa, because that would be impressive, but that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. It was, the store was named after the Gordon Lightfoot record or, or song cool. or whatever. Yeah. Um, which he played at his last show in Halifax in 2007. Uh, well, mm-hmm. something I stumbled across while doing my research, but, um, wow. Yeah. Really? I wonder if somebody went, Hey, <laughs> Anyway, cool. I'd love to just dig into a little (laughs) bit more detail about like the owners of George uh, Zimmerman, right? Like, and and maybe his musical tastes, and and was he letting you play your own stuff as sort of this store's playlist, or how 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 controlling was he of the repertory that was being uh, brought through the store, uh, and B, like how influential was that on your own taste? That was totally influential. Like his favorite band was the Kings. And, you know, before I worked there, I didn't know who the Kinks were. Like, maybe I had heard You Really Got Me, you know, or something like that. But he was deep into, obviously, like, uh, Village Green and Arthur. And I remember Arthur was the first Kinks record that I bought there at Old Dan. So that that record, while maybe not their best, it's up there. I think it's really quite excellent. That holds a special place for me because it, it's the, it was my entry point into the world of Kinks. He would, you know, if I was working there, often I'd be working on my own. So, you know, of course I could play whatever I felt like, but if he was there, he'd be playing music that I'd never heard before. He was definitely into all of that late seventies, not necessarily punk stuff, but like Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, Graham Parker, that, that kind of late seventies, British rock and roll. I remember, I remember having a Dave Edmonds record, which, and I still love those records to this day, but I remember having it on tape and bringing it into school in grade seven or grade eight. And people were like, what the hell is this like borderline country rock crap or whatever, you know, when you're playing to someone who's, you know, into, you know, the specials or something like that. That's, I was like, oh, I guess you're right. But um, I was so, I, I was so impressionable that, you know, George and his musical taste made a big impression on me. And he loved, you know, he liked the Beatles, not as much, but he was definitely heavily into the kinks what other stuff did he love he those guys like big star and mm. you know so i was hearing big star records when i was like 13 wow. and that was back when you could buy like you could buy sealed big star original records for 20 bucks you know even then it was like 20 bucks like my that that was a fortune yeah, sure. for a record that you really didn't know you know but i remember taking a chance on one and i was like oh it's you know it was really really great so you know i would hear that that kind of stuff but you're right george was he was going to St. Mary's University and he worked at the radio station there. I think he did stuff and he was taking history. And then he, I don't remember what he actually did before Old Dan's, but uh, he opened the store, I think in 79 or 80. And then when it shut down in 1985, he went off to teach English in Japan. And then he came back. And then so he kind of drifted in and out of uh, right. my life, you know right. what I mean? After that point. Him, but there was, he was also buddies with, uh, a bunch of guys. There's a guy named Bill Donnelly, a guy named Dave Porter, who went on to work at A&M here in Canada, like work at A&M in Toronto as like an A&R guy and stuff like that. And those guys worked at the different Sound the Record Man's now. Right. They were all buddies. And so those guys, I got to meet them just through old ends. And they were all into, like I said, like Elvis Costello and uh, 
the who and everything like that. So all of that stuff came from those guys. I was, I, I basically, if they said it was cool, like I basically bought it, mm. you know, or, or, or tried to get into it, you know? Yeah. Very impressionable. And, and very, and I was even able to tell George later in life, like last time I saw him in the late nineties, I was like, you know, I, I feel uh, fortunate to be playing in a band. And it was something that I think I, I really wanted to do really got into wanting to play music as a result of working at old Dan's, mm. I think, and learning about all that music and just being excited by it. And also the, the, the excitement of meeting people because you play in a band, sure. you know what I yeah. mean? Like there's that social atmosphere of it as well as not just meeting people to play music with, but playing a show and meeting people sure. and, you know, all that excitement, which I think really uh, had its genesis from working at uh, old Dan's and discovering that music. So I told that to George, I was like, you know, a big part of why you know I'm here is because of uh, of you and your influence and everything like that. So, so it's nice to be able to <clears throat> excuse me to be able to tell him. But uh, yeah, no, definitely, I was very impressionable, and uh, those guys played a big part in the, in in what happened. You know, it's crazy how moments like that in our life kind of set our trajectory. You know, yeah, yeah, um, for sure. I have two quick old dance questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. So as somebody who also worked in music retail for years and years, I found that it's almost like going to school in a way. You're seeing every record as it comes out pretty much, like if you're selling new stuff, you're yeah. looking through the catalog, you're getting encyclopedic about the various artists and titles and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so did you have, do you find in retrospect that you are particularly encyclopedic about that period? <laughs> uh, you mean from, you mean working at Old Ant like that era? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, I went on to work like when I was in university. I worked at a Sam the Record Man and stuff right, like that. Right, that's right, right. So there's that kind of stuff. But I think the any encyclopedia, like there's, I have a lot of gaps in my musical knowledge. Like Chris will or or Patrick will hear a song by or be playing a song. I'm like, what's that? And they're like, it's like April Wine's biggest hit. I'm like, that yeah. I've never heard it. I have no idea. Rush. I I did not grow up with Rush at all. Uh, but everybody I know, you know, and you could take once again, Chris and Patrick, for example, I, 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 I never heard it. I just assumed it was heavy metal and the school, that I, the school that I went to, there was no heavy metal. Nobody knew rush. Nobody listened to ACDC or anything like that. I didn't hear ACDC till like university. So I kind of like, I have huge gaps in my musical knowledge. I think a lot of the knowledge came from old dance for sure. From those guys that work there and their friends and the music that came in through the store, I, I would listen to it and learn about it. But I was also obsessed with rock journalism. I loved buying like Cream magazine, NME and Melody Maker. Like that was one thing about Halifax in the 80s. There was no shortage of uh, record stores. Like downtown, there was maybe like six or seven record stores within, you know, one kilometer of each other. There was a great magazine store where you could get Trouser Press, Cream and... NME, Village Voice, you know what I mean? I remember buying Village Voice when they had like the replacements on the cover and stuff like that. So there was, uh, I, I, I feel like I was just devouring those magazines. So I think a lot of my, anything that I know about music just sort of comes from that. And I've tried to remember as much of it as I can. But I mean, there's a lot, I, I, like I said, I think some people think maybe I know a lot, but I have large gaps in my <laughs> musical knowledge, especially in, in, in some quarters, but the stuff that I like, I think I know a bunch about, but, but yeah, uh, old dance, but also definitely just from, you know, uh, a love of rock journalism and rock and rock culture, you know, uh, growing up. Totally. And, and when I mean growing up, I'm talking like grade seven to, you know, grade, grade 11, grade 12. 
So what was your mom's reaction to you working at the store? Because I, I asked this two, in a twofold way. Um, you know, not everybody's 12-year-old is out there working for a living. But I, I also have to imagine that maybe she was more comfortable with it, perhaps, because you said it was in such, pro- such close proximity to your place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think she was maybe a little bit concerned or taken aback at the time. <laughs> I think she was like, really? But she, but she was the one who told me about the store. And then... It's uh, your fault, Mom. It's your fault that I got this job offer. I think she thought it was probably a good... She went there and she had met George, the owner, and I think she thought it was fine, you know? And it was also like a block and a half away. And it just sort of, I don't know, it occupied me on Saturdays and after school. Like I would go and work there like from four to six after school, get home, go there. Like you and could be I, doing God knows what else, right? Like, of I mean, course I could be. Yeah. yeah no, I, yeah. I think, well, I do think my mom, I think because she was a single parent, I was an only child. I think she was overprotective. And probably worried that, like, am I going to end up on drugs? Am I going to be, you know what I mean? I think she or, in you know, following some wrong path or something like that. So anything that sort of kept me occupied in some sort of relatively responsible atmosphere, uh, she was fine with it. And she had met the owner and, and was fine and everything like that with it. And I was earning, like, a whopping, you know, three twenty five an hour. Uh, when I started and 50 cents credits. So essentially 375. And it was fun. Like, I, I feel like I was given responsibility by the owner. Like even when I was, you know, 12 or 13, the owner sometimes would go away for the weekend. So I'd have to open the store on Saturday and close and do the bank deposit and that sort of stuff. So it was, uh, it was fun having that kind of responsibility as well, or, you know, it gives you a little bit of confidence or something like that. Yeah, so I loved it. <clears throat> you touched on music journalism for a second there. I'd love to dig into your interest for vintage music magazines. I mean, they might not have been vintage <laughs> at that point in time, but just maybe when did that start and and how do you um how how did that start, I guess? I think just from buying them and keeping them. Like also I was a bit of a pack rat. Mm-hmm. Like I loved I loved collecting things and I loved I was always drawn to older things as well. So even back in the day, like working at Old Ends, sometimes somebody would bring in a stack of old Rolling Stone magazines. Can you picture the ones that are folded over mm. like a newspaper mm. and stuff? And I loved I loved the look of them and I loved the graphics and everything like that, even back then. So I remember buying some of those then. So I think I was always drawn to old stuff. But yeah, all, all those magazines from the 80s, a lot of them I had to get rid of when I packed up stuff from Halifax before you know coming to Toronto. Mm. Um, and along the way after... After like my mom had passed away, has passed away like a number of years ago. So I had to go back to Halifax and and uh, with the help of Chris and our manager Mike helped me, you know, pack up her place. So there was a lot of decisions being made. Like, am I keeping you know five hundred issues of <laughs> whatever NME? I'm exaggerating, but uh, you know, so I had to pick and choose and save stuff or keep the best stuff that I want to bring back to Toronto. But I still have a lot of those ones from the '80s, and I even had just during the pandemic, I was just organizing so, much, so many of my belongings. And I started like a magazine account on Instagram mm. just because I find the covers and the graphics are so beautiful. And uh, Give it a plug. Give it a plug. Oh, yeah, it's a music uh, magazine, music mag mania. Anyhow, I, I, I even forget the exact name. But anyhow, you can find it on Instagram. Um, but I think that is spilled over to now because I still, if I find old ones that I don't have, mm. I'll still buy them. And also I, I love reading insightful interviews or well-written articles about 
musicians or bands that I, you know, that you don't find a lot of information yeah. about even today. Of course, the internet has opened up a world of that and you can do that, but I still have a love of the tangible item, whether it's a record or a magazine or a poster or whatever it's, I can be a nostalgic person. And I think that kind of, you know, I like, I like holding on to things that I had when I was young. It's very, it just reminds me of a good time. And it's, uh, I, I love the nostalgia of it. But also, I find it's also really great reference material for graphics and things sure. like that when we're totally. designing Sloan stuff, whether it's T-shirts or posters or, you know, anything that are in uh, like the, the box sets or, uh, or even just like graphics on a new album. It's like, hey, look at this cool old picture that I have in a book or a magazine. And, you know, Chris and I may compare stuff that we have and then, you know, it leads to... Uh, uh, something interesting that uh, can be put to use in in a slum, you know, graphic yeah. or something like that. So I do like to think I'm tricking myself into believing that like these are useful in some way. But uh, I do love holding on to those those sort of things. Yeah, for sure. I'm the, I'm the same. I love that. Story. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, like maybe we cut this out. I'm not sure. Maybe it's giving giving away too much. Um, but you know, Rob and I have been speculating over, and this is a bit of a tangent to the to the early Jay Ferguson story about the. Uh, inspiration for the uh, album artwork of the latest release of Steady. And, you know, it's mm. been fun over the course of Sloancast looking at inspirations for various previous Sloan albums. Um, was there a piece of musical history that informed the awesome album artwork for Steady? Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you like it. I'm going to leave it to Chris. Like Chris, okay. basically Chris's inspiration. I don't know where he got. Originally he had, uh, it was like a picture of The Clash. And it was the four of them sort of staggered, not all together, and almost just taking up one quarter or less of the album cover. And most of it was black, and that was silver, and Sloan was going to be in the corner. So we were working towards that, but it didn't, the photos that we had of ourselves didn't look as good, small. We almost thought it was becoming a little too much like between the bridges. And then I think when we made it larger and silver, we thought, like, oh, the silver, it really, let's really emphasize the silver. Yeah, sorry to disappoint, but the uh, the artwork, um, yeah, and so, but I don't know exactly, I did have a bunch of references that I sent uh, for the new Sloan album artwork. I had a bunch of references mm. uh, from older things, like a Public Image Limited poster that I liked, that I thought, oh, it was kind of a cool way, cool thing to rip off. Uh, a Sean Anna, I think, oh, uh, poster or something, and... Um, and another one, like a rock revival record, where it basically had like a guy like this, like that, but like a leather jacket like this. And it was, and like said, rock and roll revival, like in studs on the back of a leather jacket, early seventies kind of style. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Like, I really thought it'd be funny to have, or not funny, but cool to have a leather jacket with the title on it. Actually. Anyhow, Chris Chris never replied. He was like, (laughs) (laughs) gave me the old, he gave you the leather cold shoulder. Yeah. The leather cold shoulder. Yeah. Man, because I mean, that for me, that kind of goes along. I mean, we're talking about the new album now, but that kind of goes along with the sort of muscularity of the album for me. You know, we were talking about that on our last episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I will show you this because it's a bit of fun. Our Everybody's anyway. buddy Aaron Pinto messaged us this the other week. It's this two of us. I don't know how well huh. you can see that. Oh, yeah, very it's good. Like, yep. It's like a John and Paul uh, audio book. Uh, two of us, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Behind the Myth uh, by Jeffrey Giuliano. And it's yep. it's a black on silver 
Anyway. Oh, wow. I did not see that. So, that was, <clears throat> And also, it, it, I think Chris's idea was the silver. I think he was just going through all of the our album covers and being like, what color palette have we not right. used right. yet? And I think he was like, oh, silver would be cool this time. Mm. So anyhow, I think the real thing will look good. I have the CD and the silver looks good. So I know I'm seeing, so. I don't know when this record, will, this, this record, this episode will drop, yeah. but uh, I've seen people receiving their vinyl already, like on Facebook yeah. and Instagram. I'm just like, Oh my God. Yeah. And I'm checking the mailbox every five minutes. Oh, but I can't wait. I can't wait to see it myself. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, where, so where were we? Uh, we were talking about about old bands, and uh, you were talking about uh, oh, you were talking about nostalgia. And speaking of nostalgia, and I, mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. So you're in your middle teens. You're working at the store. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Correct the record here. How many times were you on television? Because because <laughs> uh, we've you, we've seen clips mm-hmm. over the years right. of you on Switchback. You know, were these all was it a matter of somebody coming into old dan is just like who are we gonna interview and you're there and you're like this charismatic kid who just knows everything i I, thank you for saying charismatic i was gonna say obnoxious or uh whatever precocious uh yeah very yeah no i think so switchback was a cbc television program if uh for anybody of my age might remember it there was a version of it in the east coast of canada there was an ontario version with a different host and there was a West Coast version with it. And it was like a Sunday morning variety show for kids where they would have music videos, cartoons, uh, maybe like the guy from the zoo. And uh, there'd be a little audience. And um, also, I think part of it was like, and they even had musicians on sometimes. Um, but also, I think one of the things was interviewing maybe kids who are doing something interesting or unusual. So... One of the things that actually I was going to send you, Rob, and I listened to it and I was like, it's too precocious to share because I thought maybe you could put it to use on this. But anyhow, so I think in around 1982, Old Dance, we hosted the first, one of the very first record shows that was in Halifax. And it was, uh, we had it at the Lord Nelson Hotel. And um, there was a guy who used to come into Old Dance who worked at, uh, I think the program was called Information Morning on CBC Radio in Halifax. And uh, he used to come in to old dance. And so I think he knew that I worked there and he had gone to the record show and he knew I was there working at it and stuff uh, because our store, because old dance had put it on. So I was invited to go on information morning, the CBC early morning radio show in the Maritimes, just to talk about the rate the record show. Like, what was it like? Like, did you buy something old? And I basically sound like, I think I mentioned to you like Alvin or Theodore, like it's such a, whatever high voice little like talking about (laughs) butcher cover or whatever and uh it's it's almost hard to listen to uh well not almost it's totally hard to listen to well we're Uh, our own great worst critic yeah of course yeah anyhow it was uh, i'm glad i did it and it was fun so i that was the first cbc thing i did now i don't know if switchback learned about me via that because it was internal cbc but i think it wasn't like them going to old dance. I think it was more like, oh, let's do an interview with Jay Ferguson. He's a kid who likes old music. Like he likes the Beatles and the Who. How unusual is that? And he's working at a record store. Yeah. So they came in and I did one in 1982. And then the next year, 1983, I was on another program called Summer Magazine. It was another just like a CBC program where they interviewed people. And I just had to go into this weird, I was dressed head to toe in light blue and super short hair and interviewed by a woman sitting on a funny bench. And like the set looked almost like a park or something. It was kind of weird. 
and I had a stack of records of like Rolling Stones and Beatles and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and yeah, that interview is re- relatively comical. And, uh, and then I was invited back to switch back a couple of years later to go into the studio. They actually had people in the studio and bring records and talk to the audience. And that's a much longer episode. Like I think I was on for like half an hour or something like that. So, so, so how, how so did your peers, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how did your peers react to this? I mean, you've kind of got this like cottage industry side <laughs> career going where you're like on TV all the time. It was hard. I mean, it was fine. I had, I mean, the second time that I went to uh, switchback to go to the CBC studios fun. There's a, fr- a good friend of mine named Peter Thomas who I went to school with. He was like, can I come along? Like, I'd love to be able to see how the show's done. So I was like, oh, yeah. So yeah. we went and we had fun. And uh, I think other people thought it was nice. But I must admit, by that one less so, but the earlier ones, I think there were some people who saw it and were like, hey, that was cool. But also you'll get the kids in school who are like, hey, hey, old Dan. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you just sort of get teased about it a bit. And you're like, oh, sure. man, just so embarrassing. You know what I mean? And then there was a, a time around then where I was invited to go on to the show uh, Going Great, which was hosted by Chris Makepeace, who was in, was he in, he was in Meatballs, I believe. Uh, so he had his own sort of kids, like a variety show, once again, about like people doing unusual things. And I remember I said, no, I don't want to do it just because it was so, just because you would sort of get teased about it. I was like, oh, I'm just tired of getting the business from, you know, people at school. But I'm I'm sad I did not say yes because I'd love to have been on the TV show with Chris Makepeace and I remember that show going great. Anyhow, so I didn't do that and I'd done the second switchback thing and by that time I was getting too old like I wasn't on you know what I mean I wasn't I was like in grade ten by then and you know whatever so forget it but um, <laughs> but I'm it took me like I could not watch those for years like it was just like so I'd be so beat red watching ten seconds of it but a few years ago I finally dug them out. I was like, oh, okay. I feel like I can watch them and laugh at them and whatever. And I'm really glad they exist. And I'm really glad that I was on those three shows and Information Morning. And there was one other radio thing as well. But I, I, I think I have it on a cassette somewhere. But um, anyhow, I, I was happy to do it. Like it was, it was, it was great. And and the owner George Zimmerman was like, get on that show, great. And don't forget to mention old Dan's at the end. You know, he yeah. he obviously loved that I was doing because I'm just like just like free promotion on, you know, CBC, CBC television. But anyhow, it was fun to do. It was, it was hilarious. Yeah. We're sitting at around like 83, 84 right now. This, I, I feel as though we're coming up into the deluxe boys era. So at some point you'd mentioned you'd taken guitar lessons, you'd got, you yeah. dabbled a little bit in, in the art. <clears throat> Sorry. In the art. Thank you, you for saying that. You, 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 dabbled, you dabbled a little bit in the art form. We had Stephen Cook on our show on maybe like yeah. episode 10, Halifax monolith, Stephen Cook and former Deluxe Boys member, Stephen Cook. And I'd love to get your take on that first band. Was that your first band? Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, sort of sure. that, that initial, you know, uh, that initial introduction into performing music. I was also, so by the time like grade eight or nine or like nine or 10, I was really interested in uh, American underground music or what was, underground in quotation marks, but like, uh, REM and the replacements, Husker do the Minutemen, not so much really punk stuff, mm. which I was aware of, or like American hardcore punk. And also, as I was saying before, I would read, I loved reading, you know, rock journalism. So I was reading interviews with Johnny Marr and interviews with Peter Buck. And I feel like Peter Buck was always talking about like, you know, we 
REM got together. I knew how to play three chords and we wrote, you know, six songs and played a bunch of covers at a church and we played our first show and it was off to the races. So I feel like, and even like the replacements, they were just like, yeah, we could barely play. We got, you know, so I found reading that kind of stuff was inspiration because I didn't know how to, I wasn't a great guitar player or anything like that. You know, it, it, it wasn't like listening to, you know, even the bands that I liked at the time, like, like say bigger bands, like even like the Beatles and stuff like that, it was not something I could picture my, myself in their shoes. Mm, you know what I mean? It right. was almost like it was beyond, or it's like, not that I knew Led Zeppelin or Queen that well, but it was almost like, how could you possibly play like that? Like they mm. have God given talent or whatever, nature given talent and um, uh, natural talent, I guess you would just say. And there's no way you could do that. But like reading interviews with people like Peter Buck, he was just like, yeah, I learned three chords and I wrote a song and, and that was inspirational. So that's what made me want to be in a band. Right. Those kind of underground bands that were doing it on their, and also just reading about how they did it on their own. So like we set up our own show in a church, you know? So I kind of thought, oh, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. And, and I kind of was like, I would ask different people. Like I remember like grade 10 or grade 11, I had a couple of friends who played guitar but it felt like we all played guitar. Right. Like, how are you going to start a band with like three guitar players? You know, no one played. We didn't know anybody with a drum kit and, you know, bass, like nobody had a bass. And it wasn't until grade 12 that I met a guy named John Gould. Uh, he was, he came to the school when I was in grade 12 and he was a couple of grades below me uh, at the grammar school. We became uh, fast friends and, and like, I think we liked a lot of the same music. And, and I remember talking to him, he was like, we should start a band. And he was like, great. Yeah. And he went out and he bought a bass. You know, learned a bit of the bass quickly. And there was another guy named Walter Kemp who was in uh, my class, who was the music teacher's son, and he could play a little bit of drums. Mm. So we asked him, was like, do you want to play drums? Like, great. So instantly we were banned, but we like we didn't have any originals or anything like that. We we learned a few easy covers like Tutti Fruity. We learned, you know, Stoked by the Beach Boys, All Day and All the Night. Uh, tequila you know the instrumental or whatever and um you know and so we started a band and we would just get together and practice a little bit but often like we'd be practicing with like just a snare drum and like one amplifier with the bass and the guitar in it and like who's gonna sing like john was like i guess i'll sing it's like okay anyhow you know a very to me it was very it was very naive in a way you know what i mean like i, I you know but uh it was fun it was a, i was like oh wait, wow we're starting a band it was just so so exciting Meanwhile, uh, there's a friend of ours. I think uh, John also had a publication going at the grammar school called the uh, the Halifax Grammar. It was like the it was called the Kazoo. It's like a stapled fanzine newspaper about what was going on at the school. And he started it with another guy named Eric Block. And now Eric Block went on to become the student council president at a school dance in grade twelve. They had hired a local band called the Killer Clams to play the dance play a school dance. They had some originals that a cassette that just came out, but they played a lot of just like danceable originals. You know what I mean? Like fifties uh, and sixties kind of rock and roll. And, um, you know, often got hired to do, you know, uh, either sort of dances, but also they did a lot of their own sort of, you know, underground gigs as well. And Eric said, Hey, do you guys want to learn some songs and open up for the killer clams at the school dance in April of 1986? Of course, which I said, yes, like, like, of course we have to without knowing we didn't even know that many songs. And, uh, so that was kind of the beginning of, uh, now that's pre Stephen Cook. So that's Walter, uh, John 
and myself. Mm-hmm. And we played two, sh- two or three shows like that. I think we even played, we got invited to play another show just before that. That was like a, it was like a young liberals or young conservatives convention that was actually being <laughs> held at our school. And we got up and played like, you know, all day and all the night, like without any PA or a small PA, like a, you know, a, a microphone going into an amp. And I'm sure they're like, what the hell is, who are these guys? Why are they here performing? But yeah, so we played that school dance. But I think one of the things that I think was probably a bad influence back then was reading stories about the replacements who would be like, yeah, we got up and, you know, someone would call, you know, a song out from the audience and we would just try and play it on the spot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought like, ah, that's great. Like, that's so fun. I bet you people would love that. And, you know, people don't really like, that. you know, I don't think people are really looking for that when they go to a show. So we learned a few songs and we also thought like, oh, you know, Tutti Frutti. Yeah, we can wing that. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, we don't really know what key it's in. We don't know all the words and stuff like that. So I think there was, that might've been a, a, a bad influence. Anyhow, I was very glad that we got to do that. A friend from grade 12 his name was Thomas McPhee, took photos of the whole show. And uh, John Gould's younger sister, Janie, she recorded the show on a boombox. And um, I'm glad that it's a well-documented show. So that was kind of a, a real treat. So that was our first show. And then we ended up playing another one with the Killer Clams. And that was fun as well. But the first one was really, really the most fun. Anyhow, there's your long-winded beginning oh, of the deluxe boys that's great man and listeners to the excellent murder records podcast will recall clips i believe of the deluxe boys show uh, appearing on that podcast um as well if, if memory serves the conversation between murph and yourself your first show actually beat his first show by what was it two weeks or something it's true by two weeks i think mm. but he he said they had originals at their first show so he wins apparently so technicalities i mean <laughs> yeah he's just trying not to stew about it right i mean yeah 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 no, that was, it was fun. But then I remember like Walter immediately went to McGill or something like that. And so we needed someone else to play. And uh, Matt Murphy, who was not necessarily a drummer, he was more a guitar player, a fantastic guitar player already by that time. But he had a drum kit in his house. And so he became the drummer. And then I think John just wanted to sing. Or we knew Steve, uh, Steve Cook, Stephen Cook. I'd known him for a few years. And he came to that first Deluxe Boy show at the grammar school, we had to sign him in basically. And he came and uh, just because, you know, you have to sign people in in case they do some damage or destructive or get drunk. He did none of those things. He was a good, great guest. Yeah. Then he had a bass. So then we played shows for another year as a four piece with Matt on drums and Steve on bass. And we started writing some originals and Steve brought in probably the most originals. And I was grateful for that. I was like, that was exciting. You know what I mean? I felt like, oh, we have some originals now. And we played the Club Flamingo a few times. Again, with the Killer Clowns, we played with the band The Jellyfish Babies and um, October Game, which was Sarah McLaughlin's first band. Like, we played a show with her, or them, I should say. And also Barry Walsh was in that band, who oh, wow. later went on to be in, uh, not well, he was in Galore later, but he was in, um, oh gosh, the name uh, escapes me. I'm embarrassed to say that right now. It was a band with Paul Boudreaux and Cool Blue Halo. Cool Blue Halo. Thank you. I can't believe I, I forgot that. But so he, had too much, too much Kathleen in my system today. So yeah, exactly. Very good. Very good. You know, we played a bunch of shows. And then again, Matt, at the end of 1986, he was going to McGill as well. Like he went off to university. And I remember talking to Matt, I was like, but man, but 
what about the band? You know what I mean? Basically, whatever, Blues Brothers, uh, John Belushi style. Like, what about the band? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Love it. of course, of course, university <laughs> takes precedence. And uh, and then that was it. And then that would have gone on into Carney Lake Road after that kind of thing. But uh, but I but Deluxe Boys was was fun. And I think I remember Chris telling me him seeing us play at the Flamingo and being like, "What the hell is this crap? You know, like, <laughs> like, like who who do these guys? How did these guys get a gig opening for the Jellybean Babies? They're playing covers. They're doing Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin, and they're playing Tequila and some originals and you know, and we're, we're not playing anyhow. Uh, anyhow, I'm, I'm happy that we got to do it. And, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed it very much with, it was a, it was fun getting together with Praxis. I thought we all got along, Matt mm. and Steve, who I'd known for a long time and, and John, who was funny. And, and it, it was, it was just fun to get together and practice because we all had a, had a good time. And I'm glad I'm still, you know, uh, friends with all of them, you know, still in touch. I mean, I don't see his Matt as much, even though he lives here in Toronto, but, you know, I talk to, uh, I'm in touch with Steve and John like uh, all the time. And, and I'm, I'm glad, very glad to know them. Before we move on to Carnegie Run, I had to quick, got to quickly ask the deluxe boys name. My question is, where did that come from? And were you, as somebody who was a student of music and visuals and stuff, were you already thinking in that vein at the time like in terms of like oh our promo shots should look like this or you know our logo should look like this we've seen sort of some of the posts of the classic club flamingo posters and whatnot yeah you know i don't I, it's funny you would think that i would be interested much more interested in the presentation but i remember steve cook ended up doing some deluxe boys logos that were kind of funny and uh i think he even was going to make one into a shirt at the time and he might have made a prototype he made some of the early posters too which was more just like cut and paste artwork mm, right. which i thought was cool and, and funny and everything like that but he kind of took the lead there to be quite honest we did go out and take a bunch of press photo press photos you know i loved uh, putting that in quotation marks because nobody can uh see this you know as if we were going to get some press you know what i mean like well, we better have some photos ready and we went around with our friend leanne gillen and uh just went around halifax taking black and white photos everywhere uh, which i still have and are pretty hilarious to see like i think i'm wearing steve's wearing these huge leather boots and i have a cowboy hat on matt looks pretty normal and I think John looks pretty normal as well. Are those the ones but, where uh, Matt has the Expos hat on? Is that would that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's one that was circulated where like Matt. I feel like I'm chasing Matt around a car, and, <laughs> or I don't know. It's basically like we were just running around like children, uh, having photo press photos. Once again, in quotation marks, being taken. And uh, anyhow, uh, they're pretty ridiculous. But uh, once again, I'm glad to have them. But yeah, to answer your question, you think I was more pushing that kind of thing but steve was a little more into making posters and stuff i think i was just into doing a windmill on stage or something you know? sure yeah. sure and then and the name was that inspired by anything do you recall at all <laughs> john gould used to always say deluxe like ah, i don't okay. know why it was just a weird thing it was a, not a common word <laughs> and like say that's pretty awesome it's like yeah that's a deluxe you always say it like that and so we just adopted the name deluxe boys i don't know why but anyhow yeah i would i would uh I would lay that at the feet of John Gould. Yeah. yeah. It's cool that that kind of relational naming of a band kind of rears its head a little bit later, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've only been in three bands technically deluxe boys, uh, yes, KLR Sloan. That's right. Exactly. That's it. Wow. Crazy. That's Ken, awesome. how many, how many, wanna... although how many bands have you been in Rob? Like would you, Wait, have you been in none that anybody cares to hear about? No, I, I can <laughs> think of a number. I mean, I, I more, I don't, I can think of, 
probably three. Anyhow, off off the bat. But anyhow, yeah, sorry. But well, more, than, more than three is what you're saying. Oh, more than three, yeah. No, yeah, I mean, okay, and not that, not that that's like not a lot or too many, I guess. I'm just sort of reflecting, you know, like hearing the story here. It's kind of interesting. I didn't know that it was just those three. So yeah. and, and, and in each amazingly have like, you know, so much there's stuff online. You can find those Deluxe Boys posters and that audio is out there and the Carney Lake Road stuff as well to mm-hmm. some degree. Yeah. Um, so it's really cool, like you were saying earlier about there being sort of a record of something that exists. You know, it's not as though there was some other band and uh, in between and there's nothing on it, you know. It's yeah. really great. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that, especially that very first show that the Lux Boys played with having the photos and I can see lots of people I went to school with who are there yeah. in the audience or just like hanging out on the side of the stage. Mm-hmm. And we invited our friend Neil McCullough up to sing Twist and Shout. And so there's <laughs> photos of him there singing Twist and Shout. So it's a lovely, uh, a lovely document that I'm I'm very, very happy to have. Once again, in, you know, I love having old photos and, and, and being drawn to nostalgia. You know, I, I love that stuff. And it's a great, great memory and, and happy it exists. Yeah. Yeah. You're moving then from a mainly cover band to, yeah. was it a fairly immediate switch over then to Carney Lake Road, which, I mean, musically, certainly a departure, right, from, from Deluxe Boys? Yeah. It, it, uh, the t- as far as the timing goes, I think... You know, I think Matt would have gone to away to Montreal probably in the fall of 1987. So Deluxe Boys probably s- stopped that summer. Mm. And probably between that and Carney Lake Road kind of starting in the fall of 1987 was months. It felt like forever. Mm. It was like, man, I'm not in a band. <laughs> but of course, it was, you know, at that time, four months probably seemed like eternity, right. you know. So, um did you yeah. know Henry and Chris at that point? Like, no, Henry, what was your what was your meeting Chris uh, experience like? So Chris and Matt Murphy played in a band with Henry Sangalang called the El Caminos, and they play, They were kind of like a covers band. I don't think I even saw had the opportunity to see them play, and I think Chris played with them sometimes. I have to ask Chris exactly. So I had always known the name Henry Sangalang for a few years, but he went to another high school called Queen Elizabeth High School, and I went to Halifax Grammar School. And there was a lot of mutual friends. I feel like I went to a party in the fall of 1987 and met Henry for the first time. I was like, oh, you're Henry Sangling. I've heard all. And uh, I remember talking to him about playing music and stuff like that because he was good or played music with Matt. And so that's probably one of the other reasons I'd heard of him. And I think he he told me about Chris. And we sort of, I remember just, I think we had tried to get in touch with Chris about, hey, I'm so-and-so, or like, he knew Henry. It's like, do you want to get together and make some music? But I, I remember Chris being really hard to find, track down. Like, I think I got his phone number, or we called him, and it was always like leaving messages. I think I thought he lived in Dartmouth, but he didn't. And then we realized his parents lived, he lived out in the suburbs, but maybe he wasn't there anymore, but he actually lived with, anyhow, this is like pre-internet cell phone days mm-hmm. trying to track someone down. It was like, it was, uh, it was hard. And then, um, I do think that Chris remembers meeting me on the way to a record show, which is unusual because Chris wasn't a record buyer. Chris wasn't really into, I mean, he, he loved music, of course, but he wasn't uh, someone who's precious about buying records. He'd you know, be fine to have a tape of it or something like that. But I think I, I had a skateboard at the time and occasionally I used it like an old banana board. And I think I was skateboarding to this, record fair and apparently i went by him or something like that and maybe he knew it was me and maybe i met him there that's all very very vague to me i feel like i should know 
this part a lot better. So maybe I'll have to have Chris back on to uh, slide right into mine and be like, look, dummy, this is the way how it happened. Anyhow, we finally, you know, got together and practiced. And, and originally, I feel like we played a lot of instrumentals, like by music that I didn't know. Mm. Like we played an early Rush instrumental. We played, you know, Led Zeppelin songs without singing. So, so instrumental versions of Led Zeppelin songs that had singing. And uh, we played at a guy named John Scott's party, mostly instrumental stuff. And I, maybe there was even like a Black Sabbath song in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we had any originals at that point. And I'm sure people at the party were just like moving into the backyard. It was like, this is cacophonous instrumental music that these guys <laughs> playing. Like it's not, it's not, you know, good time party music. We're playing, you know, whatever, dazed and confused instrumentally <laughs> at a party at full volume, <laughs> probably driving people crazy. But, you know, eventually we would practice and, you know, uh, we had originals and uh, one of the first Carney Lake Road shows was on the top of a roof, a la the Beatles, you know, get back mm. rooftop performance of a house that Chris was renting or sorry, a house that he was apartment that he was renting with friends. We all took a bunch of small, a little bit of gear and a drum kit up to the roof on this house on South Street in Halifax <clears throat> and played instrumentally a bunch of songs and i think this might even been before that party that i was talking about and i remember this guy named paul boudreau walking by who was later in cool blue halo and i think he looked up and i could see him and he saw us playing and uh, i remember he also had a show on ckdu where i also had a, a radio show at the same time that was dalhousie radio i don't know i don't know what we thought we were doing like we we're on a rooftop nobody can see us the flat top and we just you know we had we took photos as well. Mm. So that was our first gig, once again, in quotation marks. And then uh, I think the next gig, I was going to King's University at the time. And Chris and Henry were at Dow, I believe. And uh, one time, we took all of our gear, it piled it into Henry's car, drove to the quad at, at King's College, took all the gear out. We had a, an extension cable, ran it into one of the dorm rooms, basically like into a hallway where there was a plug brought the extension cord back out, plugged the two amplifiers into it and started playing in the quad in a parking lot in the evening at King's College. Halfway into, you know, an instrumental version of a police song, <laughs> I think we, <laughs> like, I think we're playing like next to you, like right. instrumentally, of course. Oh my and, God. Uh, and halfway into, so you're talking like a minute and a half, a guy from the student council comes out, or no, like <clears throat> like a student, a student security, basically, sure. not really official security came in, he was like, you guys got to stop. Like, who the heck, like, you can't play here. And we're like, oh, I made up a name of a guy who I knew. It's like, oh, so-and-so from student council told us to come here and play. And, you know, just check with him. Like, you know, not imagining this guy could find him. So it's like, okay. And he left and we kept playing. And that guy came back. I'm going to say, you know, three minutes later, is like, what the hell are you talking about? Get the hell out of here. You know what oh, I mean? So man. we brought all his gear over to play for approximately four minutes in <laughs> at the quad at King's College instrumentally. So those were the first two Carney Lake Road shows. And then we just started practicing a lot and, and writing songs that were probably much more influenced by things like the Minutemen. And, you know, I, I still love the Beatles and stuff like that. But I remember it was it was much more complicated and convoluted music and we thought maybe that would, or, or based on riffs, right? And less so, like the idea almost of just playing normal chords seemed sort of almost like passe or like right, too right. too easy. So we're playing, 
these complicated riff things. And, and Chris and, and Henry both really liked Led Zeppelin. And I was getting into Led Zeppelin at that time, too. Yeah, and that band existed for, you know, for a couple of years. And we played a lot of shows and played at the Rivoli here in Toronto and uh, did a little thing for Much Music and played at the Fufoon a couple of times and a couple of times in Montreal. But anyhow, sorry, that's like a bit of a shortened... The, the beginning though was just funny. Like it was just, it was just kind of, of uh, funny. But Henry had a great house and a great uh, place to practice, mm. so that was a real yeah. bonus, basically. You know. Anyhow, sorry that was a little long winded, but no, that was great. I, I feel like I feel bad if I'm stepping on Ken's next question here, but I have to use your word a cacophony of questions in this regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there tape of the much music thing of you guys on there? KLR number one, number two. Talk to me, if you will, about the sort of initial relationship with Chris, because I mean, you guys in in this in this current band have had that longest stretch of ever relationship from, you know, early Carnegie Road till now, yeah. um, and and then also <laughs> this is like way too many questions at once, but like early songwriting, like when you started writing songs yourself, was that a deluxe voice thing? Was that more of a Carnegie Road thing? Did that come kind of later? Um, definitely, uh, became a Carnegie Lake road thing. I wasn't really, I was writing a, a couple of songs in deluxe boys, but the, you know, these songs weren't great. I feel like Stephen Cook was writing the better songs mm. definitely in, in deluxe boys or songs that were a little more developed and, and a little more interesting than, than mine for sure. Carnegie Lake road. I had some songs that I think were almost a little more REM inspired and some of the first tape that we had made. Chris's influence was probably not felt as much. Mm. And it was more like Henry songs and my songs. And we recorded a tape at the Center for Art Tapes. And that would be like early 1988. I even remember when we went to, we recorded a bunch of stuff and then we went to mix it. And Chris never showed up. And we're like, what happened to Chris? And it was like, we found out he, he went to Boston. And with his friends, we're like, oh, I guess. I think Chris, even early on, like I think he loves Carney Lake Road now. But I think at the very beginning, I think he was a little bit embarrassed because Chris was into... Chris was in a band called Spent, and they were also called Aware. I forget which one came first. But he was in a band with another guy named Chris Murphy and another fellow named Gordon Krieger and uh, and Steve McCullough. And I think they were definitely, they were more hardcore punk influenced right. by DC stuff. I think Chris maybe thought Carney Lake Road was like a diversion. Mm-hmm. And the music that maybe the songs that I had or some of Henry and Henry's influences, which was very 60s mod kind of rock and stuff like that. I think he just was like a little bit embarrassed of it. Or maybe he thought the guys in Spent and stuff would think like, this is not, this is lame or something like that. So I'm sure it was kind of like wrote at the beginning might've, you know, Chris might've thought of it as more of a, yeah, like a diversion and, and not, not hardcore or punk enough or something like that. You know, maybe he wasn't as, I feel like Henry and I were like, this is, this is, this is going great. Like we were committed and maybe Chris was just sort of like, uh, this is something I'm just doing. You know what I mean? Like these guys are asking me to play drums and whatever, you know, maybe Chris has a different take on it, but um, I think Chris became more invested when he began writing more songs. And like I said, they're a lot more riff based. Some of my songs were kind of riff based and, and uh, influenced by things like the Minutemen and definitely moved away from, anything that was more like jangly rock that mm. would have been early rem kind of style so uh oh and by the way yes there is we have the much music footage of carney lake road playing at the rivoli uh and and being interviewed by erica m at the at the oh as well God. henry does most of the talking actually so childhood um, childhood crush erica m i would do yeah. anything to see that footage man okay yeah that, you know, we'll that and the oreo reverse footage i gotta yeah, see the oreo oh, reverse right, yeah, is right, right up there <laughs> yeah 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 
It's good. So, you know, uh, that was really the beginning of, of songwriting. When I look back on those songs, like I'm not, I think Chris was writing some good songs. There was a song called Painting a Room, which oh, was actually very courty, but it was very, had great lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I think that really stands out. And shout Henry, out, I want to say, sorry yeah. to interrupt, sh- shout no. out to the Murder Records pod again. That Painting a Room, uh, the entirety of that song is in a Murder Records uh, pod episode. I'll, I'll maybe put it in the notes when the show comes out, but it's worth yeah. listening to that episode just for that song. Fantastic. That was a fun conversation for me to have with Chris, just talking yeah. about uh, that era of uh, the bands that we knew in Halifax or, or people who would have been our peers when we were on Carney Lake Road. That was all the other punk bands, and especially both of us looking up to the Jellyfish Babies who are like a grade younger than us, but they had an album out, like right. a vinyl record out in grade 12, right. which was mind-blowing at the time. Like Carney Lake Road, we made a cassette and we're like in second year, third, second year university. And, you know, we sold 15 copies at the local record store. And we're like, oh my God, like we're, you know, we're, we're on the, we're on the way to stardom. But meanwhile, you know, Jeff, Jellyfish Babies have a real tangible record and they're in grade 12, you know? Uh, so we lo- like, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, quick note to the listener. It's the Murder Records podcast, episode two, uh, 80s Halifax Underground. The, the uh, Carnegie Lake Road song is on that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out. Yeah, it's, it was, it's a, I, I'd like to, uh, hopefully people would enjoy the conversation and the other For tracks sure. that are hinted to and, uh, and uh, some early, <laughs> I think, is the Deluxe Boys song on that one? I think, I think it might be. The one you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's like, it's, you can almost hear the hiss of the tape player. Oh, yeah. That, well, the, yeah. And then the tape player died like on the fifth or sixth song. So, yeah. anyhow. That's all I get. Uh, but it, yeah, exactly. There were some, and Henry was bringing in some really interesting songs towards the end of Carney Lake Road that we, that didn't really get recorded. But Carney Lake Road, like we made, you know, a couple that we made a tape at a place called the Center for Art Tapes in Halifax with a, a friend of ours named David Boyle. And then we, Chris had a four track cassette player or recorder, I should say. And we recorded kind of like a, the, the second tape mm-hmm. at a house that he was renting. And then the third Carney Lake proper recording was done at um, a studio run by a guy named Lloyd Hansen. I think it was called Real North Studio in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And we went up there for a few days. And that was when Peter Rowan, uh, who was an early right. Sloan manager with co-manager with Chip Sutherland, he had a, a real, like a record label in New Brunswick that was called DTK. Right. And these tapes were being recorded with the thought of putting a Carney Lake Road record out on DTK. Right. But uh, Carney Lake Road sort of broke up towards the end of 1989, early 90. And those recordings would have been done in the fall of 1989. So they never really ended up seeing the light of day other than like a few songs being put on a cassette and left at CKDU, uh, Dow Radio in, in, in Halifax. So uh, so th- those would be the three sets of recordings over the, the period of Carney Lake Road's, you know, two, two and a half year existence. And um uh, yeah, you know, the songwriting, you know, changed and stuff like that. And wh- when I listen back to it, like I find my songs kind of hard to hear, but uh, hard to listen to. But I really, uh, Henry had a cool one called Prescription. Chris's Painting a Room was great. Mm. There's another one called Righteous by Chris, which I'm sure he sort of laughs at sometimes, but I think it was cool and had cool chords in it and everything like that. But um, my singing wasn't great. So I, I have a, I have a hard time listening to them. But but there was some there was some cool stuff in there for sure. Cool, man. Well, speaking of seeing the light of day, I mean, would any of that material ever materialize at some point in your mind? Like, I mean, the obviously not necessarily re-recorded. Like, like you know, Chris had Jenny on the seven inch. 
yeah. uh, sort of a re-record of a Spence song. <clears throat> yep. Not to suggest that they would be re-recorded, but you know, famously, some of that Carney Lake Road stuff is it's out there. It's on YouTube if people go looking for it. And it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I don't think everything's available, yeah. but is that something that you can see ever surfacing? I think it's it's an ongoing sort of conversation slash argument that Chris and I have. I, th- I think I think maybe it's like we we actually did you know digitize a bunch of the four track recordings mm-hmm. over the past. Like I think we did it sorry before COVID really hit, mm-hmm. and um, with the eye of maybe mixing them and see if see if we'd like to do anyhow. Maybe I'm just going to leave it at maybe one day. I think there's some time. I, th- I think I just have a bit of like. I don't know if it's good enough. You know what I mean? And I think Chris would like to do it. And, uh, you know, maybe we would make a limited edition, something or other one day. Anyhow, we'll see. I'm not, I'm not too sure yet, but, no, but that's we, fine. We could. yeah. But would you? I would settle in the meantime for just like a Connie Lake road shirt. Like <clears throat> we saw it at the uh, murder garage sale. Well, and, and Chris, some of the Chris famously Man, wearing, wearing oh, the yeah. Carney Lake road shirt on the drums with the long hair. That's it's sort of embedded it in my, yeah. in my, Oh mind. yeah. There's a, that's right. There's that one. Uh, yeah, you might have seen my girlfriend Allie had her. Uh, she one day one day I was just like digging through the basement a couple of years ago, and I found my Carney Lake Road shirt. And she looked at it. She was like, "That's amazing! Like, yeah. can I wear that?" She like, "It's a cool illustration of us by Chris and the font, which I find is too big and whatever now." But yeah, so she was like, "Oh, I said, oh, you should wear it at the Murder Records sale." So. That's where a lot of people would have, might have seen it. So I, you're right. Maybe we should reprint. Maybe we should start slowly with the Carney Lake Road merch and then slowly move <laughs> into actually releasing recordings. In and, yeah, exactly. I want to say props on the uh, Super Duper EP era local rabbit shirt that you were wearing too. <laughs> Big jealousy over here for that one. Okay. It's basically XXXL and it doesn't fit me that great, but I had to wear it. Uh, I couldn't find my really bright orange with palm trees <laughs> local rabbit shirt. So I had to settle for the super duper uh ep one which i think they gave to me back when i kind of first met them yeah so yeah, that's kind of right like on. circa 94 95 yeah that's whatever. so cool but anyhow yeah it was fun to whatever dig some of those out for the for the uh garage sale yeah which hopefully was very by the way a sidebar uh that was successful and fun and thank you for coming along uh rob it was nice to see you there ken i can't believe you didn't take a flight <sighs> from over and just to show up for, you know, three hours of fun, but no kidding. I understand. So it was so successful and, and it was a nice get together and to see a lot of familiar faces or people I hadn't seen in a long time that, uh, you know, fingers crossed, I think we may do another one uh, next summer. We'll see. Anyhow. So, Fantastic. so hopefully, uh, hopefully Amazing. we'll make that happen. Awesome. I don't want to, yeah. so I don't, maybe I'll cut this out later. I'm genuinely curious about this. When I was um, in high school, my friends had a street sign that they copped Called, it was it was an Albion Road street sign for people who grew up in Ottawa. I don't want to get hung up too much on etymology. That the origin of Carney Lake Road in terms of geographically is clear, but was there a street sign hanging out in somebody's room, or how did how did that name like how did you guys say we want this kind of obscure semi-rural Halifax roadway to be our band name? <laughs> I like that. Like a semi-obscure Halifax roadway was that's our genre basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I think that uh, Chris had that sign, and I don't know how he got right. it. But Carney Lake Road was out where he lived in yeah. Rockingham, or where he grew up, it was like out in that area. You know, I think he just had it for some reason, and I kind of thought it looked cool. And I guess we just agreed to name the band Carney Lake Road because immediately we had a sign. Yeah, 
and we would put it on stage sometimes in front of the drums or whatever. And actually, uh, back to the Murder Records uh, garage sale, it was, I don't know if anybody caught a glimpse of it, but it was hanging in the back or just like leaning up in the back of the garage. Of course, so it still exists. So yeah, there's still some Sloan, uh, whatever. And Carney Lake Rome Road uh, museum pieces to be had for when Fantastic. when someone comes calling for them. Um, <laughs> I remember. I remember uh, two quick things. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in Halifax a number of years ago driving, and I and I'm looking at my phone, and it's like telling me to turn left on Carney Lake Road, and I turn. I'm like, oh my god, I'm on that fucking road. <laughs> I had to take like a screen cap of it. Amazing. And for anybody who was <clears throat> aware, it's it's no longer your studio rehearsal space now, but the old place on Geary there. Yeah. Um, when I found out where you guys were, because it's not immediately obvious if you're just walking past, it's pretty mm-hmm. not a script. But if you, but there was a Kearney Lake Road sign in the window, and I was like, ah, like if you know, you know. You know? Oh, like, really? Yeah, I never thought of that. It was like a secret. Like, yeah. Uh, if someone's trying yeah. to find, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that's got to be this spot. If yeah, you know, right. then you, you know. know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and as to you with Rob, when I'm in Halifax and I'm driving back, I'll, I'll hey, Kearney Lake Road, like I still do it myself. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, hey. awesome. Anyhow, or pointed out to someone who's in the car who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you had a longer break then between, it must have felt like an eternity between Carney Lake Road and Sloan then for you as well, because you must have been so invested then into making music and having grown alongside alongside the band. But I'd love to get a general understanding of like, what was your feeling like going into Sloan Versus how you were feeling going into Carney Lake Road. You're three or four years older. You know you've had a little bit more experience in doing shows. What, what was your mind? Where was your mindset at in sort of the summer, fall, winter of 1990? Yeah, I'd say like uh, when Carney Lake Road ended, I was kind of sad about that. Like I thought it was fun. It was doing well, and and or, yeah, I mean as well as could be playing in Halifax. It was exciting to go to Toronto and and make recordings, and you know we had that album that was ready to go but you know i don't know i think you know when you're younger i didn't i i i probably didn't behave my best i i grew up as an only child so i was still learning about like how you get along or work on something collectively to a common goal you know what i mean i'm usually just i grew up doing what i wanted to do i you know obviously as i said before like i had a i worked at a at a store where i could sort of do what I want. I was with like-minded people and, you know, but it wasn't my business to run or anything like that. And Deluxe Boys was, you know, there was less pressure. It was just sort of more fun. And Carnegie Lake Road, it was, it was almost like I thought like, oh, we should, we could really take this some somewhere. Maybe, you know, thinking naively a little bit, you know, I I think, you know, I I didn't know what the limits could be, uh, or I just assumed that, and, you know, even funnily enough, I remember having a Carnegie Lake Road tape of four track stuff and being in Cape Breton where my mom's relatives are from. And I went back there for Christmas and I was playing it for one of my uh, older cousin's uh, wife who was there. And I was like, oh, this is the band I'm in, Carnegie Lake Road. I was playing a tape, you know what I mean? And she was like, uh, sounds good, Jay, you know, in a totally sarcastic, uh, way. And, uh, you know, but realizing that these are people who probably, you know, listen to Billy Joel or Anne Murray or something like that. It wasn't like, I just assumed like, listen, how complicated and cool this is. Like, mm-hmm. isn't this the greatest thing here? And then sort of realizing, oh, okay, maybe not everybody <laughs> likes Carney Lake Road. You know what I mean? Uh, and she made me turn it off. So um, being involved in Carney Lake Road, I thought maybe it could have gone somewhere. And, and, you know, you're, you're, you're working together to a common goal with, with two other people and maybe I didn't behave my best or like didn't get my way and I'd just be 
annoyed or or something like that. And anyhow, I think there was a lot of re- there was a, a few reasons why it kind of ended, mm-hmm. but also maybe it just sort of ran its course as well because like where are we going to go from here? You know, what do we do next? Do we tour Canada and gamble losing a bunch of money? Anyhow, um, so you know, I took that time off. Chris began playing music with Andrew Andrew Scott right. uh, in a band with another guy named um, uh, a guy named John, and is uh, a friend of theirs. They sort of played maybe a couple of shows and stuff like that under different names as well. I forget exactly. One of them was Clothesline, I remember. I forget the other one. Oh, I should have taken some notes or, or done a little bit of research beforehand. But so they were playing music. And, you know, I didn't hang out with Chris as much, but I still stayed friends with him. And uh, I remember I would still go and uh, hang out with him or visit him. And uh, eventually we started talking about starting another band. And I don't even remember the genesis of that. But, you know, there's different music that I was into, like uh, My Bloody Valentine and stuff like that. And I remember him talking about how he heard My Bloody Valentine on my college radio show on uh, CKDU and him having an epiphany and basically calling me at the, like, what the hell is this? And I was playing You Made Me Realize on the radio. And I think that that sort of, that style of music wasn't really, you know, brought into the Carney Lake Road influence but eventually made it into the, the Sloan right. influence. Even though when Sloan started, it was a little more traditional rock. You know what I mean? It, it, it wasn't almost until something like Loveless came out sure. that we really took all of those early songs like Marcus said or I Am the Cancer and really put them into a, a you know, I don't want to say shoegaze, but just for a generalization of more of a noisy pop kind of uh, template, you know, but going into Sloan early, I was excited that Chris wanted to play music again. Cause I, I liked Chris and I thought he was talented and I thought he wrote good songs and I liked being in a band and I was familiar with him being in a, in a new band. I wasn't starting from ground zero with anybody else. I think we enjoyed ourselves. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he wanted me in a band with him or whatever. I feel grateful now. Like there's other people that probably could have been, in a band with him. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he uh, was interested in playing music with me. And um, I was just excited. I remember the, I remember the early shows we played. I think some people thought they were great, but I remember by the second or third show, there were some people who really liked Carney Lake road, mm. but they were not as fond of, or okay. they just thought Sloan were like, yeah, it's pretty good. And I was like, Oh man, like, are you serious? Like, this is great. Like some of these early songs that we played, like, uh, it was an early one of Chris's called Caroline, which was a little bit Jesus and Mary Chain-ish on the demo. But uh, I loved that song. And maybe that I'll see the light of day one day. And you know, we had, yeah, yeah, there you go. You read it. You know, Underwhelmed. We had Underwhelmed. And uh, so I was, I was sad not to be in a band in that 1990 summer, mm-hmm. I would say. But when Chris wanted to start a, a band again in the fall of 1990, and I remember Andrew at that point was living in Toronto. And I came up to Toronto in the fall of 1990 to go see Sonic Youth and Red Cross play at the Great Hall on Queen Street uh, with my friend Chris Harper, uh, who some people might know from uh, working at Rotate This for a a zillion years. And and I knew Andrew was probably going to be at the show. And I remember seeing Andrew outside after the gig, uh, which had been shut down because they oversold the show and they turned the lights down and cut the power and everything like that. Very exciting to be in Toronto and 
seeing Sonic Youth and all that happening. And I saw did Sonic, the, did Sonic Youth get to play at all? They played, but they played about two thirds of the set. And then mm-hmm. Thurston led the crowd in an acapella version of Search and Destroy wow. by the Stooges. Right. And wow. then he was like, let's tear this place down. Anyhow, I think. Oh, and then the promoter was on the side like, shut up, please just <laughs> calm down. The place was surrounded by police because there was about 250 people outside who had tickets who weren't being allowed into the building. Holy and shit. it was it was kind of mayhem, but they were on the Goo tour, and it was a great setlist. Anyhow, I, I I don't mean to go down such a rabbit hole. And no, it's Red, great. Red, Red Cross opening on the Third Eye tour. And yeah, how cool is that? I mean, end up. I mean, I don't know how long in the chronology it is, but you guys end up being buddies with them essentially. Yeah, and I remember telling them, I was like, I saw you on the, you know, anyhow, yeah. whatever. Uh, they probably didn't care. But, but anyhow. Um, <laughs> you ran into Andrew. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no, so I remember outside the gig afterwards, I saw Andrew. I was like, hey, uh, I was talking to Chris. Like, I heard you're going to come back and maybe we'll start a band. He's like, yeah, I'm going to come back at the end of the fall or Christmas and stay in Halifax and, you know, we'll start a band. So, you know, that, that was nice. And then I ran into Andrew the next night at the Bob Mould show, which was at the diamond, which became the Phoenix here in Toronto, which is the still probably the most, the loudest show I've ever been to. Mm. But, uh, anyhow, yes. So Andrew, it was just nice seeing Andrew and that he was game to come back. So that was the Genesis of Sloan. It was like Chris and Andrew had been playing music together. Andrew moved away and then came back. Those guys have been staying in touch. And so it was Chris, me and Andrew. We invited another friend from Halifax to play bass at the first Sloan rehearsal. I don't know if we thought it worked out perfect. And then we knew Patrick, uh, who played in another band called Happy Co. And their band had just broken up. And Patrick was a singer-songwriter in that band. Also with Cliff Gibb, who went on to play in the band Thrush on It, uh, which was uh, Joel Plaskett's band in the 90s. And um, so Patrick's band, Happy Co., who I'd seen a couple times, and they were very almost like, not like early Soul Asylum, but like Soul Asylum Doughboys, like that kind of melodic rock punk. But he had been in hardcore bands before that and everything like that, or punk bands. He had a wide range of, of styles. And uh, so their band broke up. And I think Patrick, we knew him a little bit. He worked at a magazine store around the corner from a record store. I was working out called Discord, uh, which was owned by Frank Brady, who was the guy who I met at the Beatle Fest back in 1981, just tying everything in a loop here. I think Patrick just wanted to be in a band and not have to think because he had been in Happy Co as the main songwriter and guitar player. So he joined Sloan or, you know, Chris Andrew and I to play bass. And that was it. Like not necessarily be a songwriter. He was like, yeah, I just want to have fun playing music and play shows. Yeah, I'll play bass, you know, and Chris was going to be the primary songwriter. And I think I had some songs and, uh, and then it was about halfway through that first year that Chris and Patrick swapped. Chris began playing bass and, and, uh, right. And Patrick uh, began playing guitar, and that's really the the beginning of of Sloan, and that really led to the the smeared era Sloan yeah. uh, or whatever. But anyhow, so that, I, I sort of rambled a little too long for what you were asking, Ken. But <laughs> yeah, I definitely felt at the end of Carney Lake Road, I was I was sad because I really enjoyed being in a band, and like I said, even before early, just the 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 fun of it, the dream of it, you know what I mean? The, the idea of playing music on stage and uh, as a way to meet people and, you know, you sort of become confident that way. And also just the uh, social atmosphere of playing in a band or being in a scene mm. and uh, putting on shows or playing shows with other bands. And uh, the, the one thing I, I didn't mention even for that very first Deluxe Boy show that we played at the grammar school, I remember 
being so excited because I remember a friend of mine who I didn't go to the grammar school with called me up that day of the gig. And he was like, Hey, do you want to go and do something? And I had to say like, no, I'm sorry. I have to go to sound check. Mm. And I was so excited to be able to say like, you know, I, I, I can't come and hang out cause I have to go to sound check for a gig Love it. and, 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 you know, put my, you know, carry my guitar <clears throat> to school that evening to do the soundtrack and everything like that. And like, to me, that was such an exciting right. thing. Right. You know what I mean? For like, uh, you know, someone who's 16 years old or whatever. And you um, got to think Peter, a uh, 16 year old Peter Buck probably said the same thing. I, I feel, I think a lot of people thought that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like people who just sort of like had that dream of being in a band and, uh, and I, just, I can picture that, you know, sort of the, the weather's just getting slightly nicer. It's like mid April in Halifax and just walking to school for the Friday night and doing a soundtrack and everything like that. And, and so I can, I can picture it, but that was a real, like sort of a dream moment. You know what I mean? And it's, it's nothing to go to a soundtrack or whatever, but just to be like, Oh yeah, I got to go to soundtrack. You know, it was just a fun thing to say, but also like, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to play music and just, uh, you know, it was just a fun memory to have yeah. for sure. You know? That's yeah. great. Do you remember a point now that you're in Sloan, um, in, in somebody who's been in bands before, I haven't totally experienced the, the, the second thing I'm about to ask here, but I've certainly had that moment at a rehearsal where you're like, ah, this is really working. I really like this. Like there's a comfort level. There's something, there's a spark. There's something special going on. And then the second tier of that being at a show, I mean, prior to Sloan, had you had that magic moment on stage where it's like, oh shit, something's going on here. Like the audience band connection, there's something special happening. This is different. This is unique. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure I think it would have happened in Carney Lake Road because I think some of those shows were kind of exciting. Sometimes you would get a great audience and a great reaction and you feel like this is, this is, you know, there's something happening and it's a very special moment. You know, I can't think of one specifically, but I remember enjoying those Carney Lake Road shows uh, a lot. And, uh, you know, the ones that we went to out of town, like they would have been a little tougher because people had no idea who you were. Uh, especially there were shows at a, at a show at a, at a venue called the North street church in Halifax. That was a church, but they rented it out. You could rent it out to have a, a gig. So a lot of punk gigs were there or uh, underground band gigs and stuff like that. And one of those in particular, I just remember, I think it might've been the one we were opening for a band called bliss. And there was a good crowd there. And I was just like, this is exciting. Like this was just like a great, uh, uh, a great moment. And as far as Sloan is concerned, in that early, I think the real, the first time that we had played the songs, the way they became on Smeared was like, I think people really stood up and, and, and took notice and people thought, I thought it sounded cool. And it sounded unlike anything else that was going on in Halifax until we met Eric's trip and saw them play in Halifax right. and being like, oh my God, like, I thought, <laughs> we thought we were, you know, totally hot. Like, these guys are amazing. Like they were so exciting and they had their own light show. Like they had light bulbs on the stage. They controlled with little foot pedals and That's cool. they, they were phenomenal. Like, but, but also, but also it was like a kinship, you know what I mean? At that time there was in England, there was the label creation records where, you know, there was my bloody Valentine, but also slow dive and ride and teenage fan club. And it almost seemed like, a scene within a label. And I remember seeing Eric's trip and it almost felt like, oh, okay, we're of a like-minded influence, like whether it's like dinosaur, Sonic youth, my bloody Valentine, and uh, just similar touch points and doing something that, you know, no one else really in Halifax or the Maritimes was doing. 
and um, it just it was an exciting it was an exciting time. And then getting validated by uh, playing the shows that got the attention of Network Records and eventually Geffen Records as well. Or the fellow Cam Carpenter worked for MCA Universal in Canada, saw us and passed the tape along to Geffen. And, you know, Geffen at the time, of course, being the home of Sonic Youth, mm. Nirvana, Hole, Teenage Fan Club, that was a real validation of something that we were, we were doing at the time. Yeah, back, stepping back a second to, to talk about something you said a moment ago about when you got the smeared songs sounding like they ended up sounding on the album. Obviously, there was a period, and we've seen the, the footage on YouTube of the first show, like in the cafeteria. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was, I guess my question is once again to double tiered where it's like was it a deliberate thing was it a, just a naturally occurring thing or was it like a, okay on this day the songs sound this way and then on this day we've now applied this method of performing and now it's completely different that's part one part two is this obviously occurred again in like 93 94 mm-hmm. and this is something we've talked on the show about just speculating yeah. to death about you know we yeah. hear the vermonstrous show and then you know within months you're in new york recording twice removed and you're almost a completely different band yeah. so was there a parallel there at all from you know, like shaping the songs and shaping the sound. Was it just a naturally occurring, you know, slow thing or was it a deliberate, like, okay, boom, one day we're this way, next day we're this way. I'm not sure uh, based on my own memory, but I would say for the first change, when we really changed into, you know, the, definitely a more of a My Bloody Valentine influence, uh, to me, that seemed a little more of a clear line in the sand. I felt like some of the stuff we were doing before, like the first show was kind of chaotic, that that art school show, which was, all, I mean, we were also, it was around the time Chris was really getting into Can, mm. uh, and I learned about the band Can from Chris. I didn't know. He heard it at a party, and he really uh, got into it, and I ended up getting a couple of those records too. And I feel like there's a little bit of just sort of that chaotic art school kind of show that, you know, uh, was evident on can the can 1969 record or whatever. Uh, yeah. And then I feel like some of the, with the way we used to play Marcus said was a little bit more traditionally just Cordy and, and Donna down playing it on a, just playing chords, almost like a, an indie rock band. And, you know, it wasn't until we were doing like all the string bends and the sort of really distorted rapid strumming on like the way it became on, on smeared taking marcus said for example um i feel like that was definitely more like night and day like that happened more quickly i i think and that really became the path for us and but for your other question about the the transition from smeared to twice removed to me that felt a little more gradual mm. i feel like we on the end of the smeared tour we were already playing we might have been playing pen pals but we were also we were playing coax me for sure and those songs really uh, led the way into the sound, I feel, of Twice Removed. And by the end of 1993, the, the style that we were playing, of, uh, playing with sort of noisy guitars and melody and everything like that, and, and also with Nirvana becoming a number one band and, and everything like that, there were so many noisy guitar pop bands at that point. It almost felt like, do we... You know, and I, and I think I think Patrick often says like he probably wishes we had stayed on that mode a little bit further, maybe another record or two, because I don't think that I th- it's almost like Smeared had unfinished business. Right. You know, like I think we could have made another record that really sounded like that. But I remember, and I don't know if it was just me being too cool. It's like oh, I want to distance myself from that sound at that time personally, and I think Chris kind of maybe felt the same way as well. It's almost like there was it was exciting at the beginning, and then now it was just. Uh, 
it was just, there was just a glut of that kind of music and getting watered down. And we kind of wanted to distance ourselves and change and assuming like, oh, we'll be just as popular, you know, by changing our sound drastically. Yeah. Uh, listening to, for me, listening to, you know, Rumors by Fleetwood Mac and the third Velvet Underground record and maybe some 60s Stones records, that really, for me, influenced the sound of twice removed. Andrew was also really into the Slint uh, Spiderland record. And I feel like that really influenced before I do. Mm. Uh, from my perspective, I mean, maybe Andrew might speak differently, but I know that he liked that record at the time. And uh, he liked Pavement as well, uh, which I think sort of was evident a little bit in People of the Sky. And also I remember hearing uh, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain came out by Pavement, the second album, came out while we were making Twice Removed. And I remember buying it and being very jealous of it as well. Yeah. I was like, oh man, like they did a left turn and it's cool. There was almost like classic rock elements in Pavement. I was like, that's pretty sly. Mm -hmm. And I, I also, but I also felt like, oh, Twice Removed does sound a lot different. But um, it was definitely a reaction to what was, what Smeared was. Yeah. But I, but as Chris says, and definitely I think Patrick feels we made a, a a left turn too early because as a lot of people out there who are Sloan fans know the story, Twice Removed was handed into Geffen. They're like, I don't know, we don't know how to market this after Smear. This is a different band. Like, why don't you go re-record it? Even mm -hmm. though Todd Sullivan, our A and R guy, knew how how Twice Removed was sounding the whole time. He he was like, sounds great, you know. But yeah. when marketing heard it, they were kind of like. We don't know how to market this to radio. This yeah. has no place in in how we push music these days. So, you know, maybe we should have made a record. Uh, I think Chris also often says the next record should have been the blue record by Weezer. Right. Like that yeah. should have been our second yeah. record. And mm -hmm. then maybe gradually changed or whatever. I'm proud of Twice Removed. I think it's a wonderful, like, it's great. I think you and guys I, did the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Robbie. Thanks. But, you know, it's, it, but it's, hard to, it's hard to say. Like, you know, it, it was a tough time sticking by our guns for twice removed but sure i think it i think it stood the test of time but i also think smeared is a great record too like i don't uh oh for sure i wouldn't knock either of them but but yeah to you know i know that once again that was long-winded but i think no, that, that that one was a little bit more gradual whereas i find the going into the more smeared era was like let's try and play our songs like this mm -hmm. you know what i mean and we did them we just sort of applied that template to all of them that's my uh, recollection anyhow yeah well, getting into sort of wrap-up questions here, because obviously mm -hmm. we want to respect your time, and thanks again for doing yeah, yeah. this. You spoke earlier about, you know, being a kid who, you know, got into record collecting, and you're looking at the Stones, and, you know, you're this authority on music, and you have this incredible collection. You're in this band, and then obviously years later, you have this opportunity. You guys have opened for the Rolling Stones, and yeah, met yeah. them <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah. What is that phone call like to your mom or to your friends, where it's just like, you know, here it is. I've arrived. Like how much, like for me being like a lot more low level, op being in a band and opening for you guys, I don't have to do anything else in music. Like I've, <laughs> now li I've lived my dream. Right. So how much, you know, how mu much more black, Thanks, whatever spinal tap reference, how much more to, to 11 could it possibly be than you opening for the Rolling Stones? You know I mean? no, yeah, no, super exciting. You're right. Like, what was that call like? You know what I mean? We, we got to take a picture with the Rolling Stones. And of course, yeah. you give that to your mom. And it's just like a badge of like, like it's, it's such great bragging rights for any of your relatives who are like, look what my boy is doing. Or you know what I mean? Like I, Unreal. that kind of yeah. stuff. I, I I, that was fun and also personally fun to play with them. It's it's almost like if someone had told, you know, the 13-year-old me who's buying 
you know, my, the first Rolling Stones album I had was Beggar's Banquet. And then eventually it just sort of went both ways from there. Uh, you know, getting the records, the later ones and the newer ones and everything like that. Uh, so I was a big fan. So when that happened, yeah, it's like if you had told my 13 year old self, you know, Hey, one day you're going to, you know, meet them and, and play on the same stage with them, not just once, but like two shows and then another two times. So essentially four gigs. So it was very, very exciting. And, and as a, as a big, uh, rock fan growing up and, and, uh, yeah, a real fan, which I still am today. I'm still a fan of music and I, and I love the culture of it and I love finding new bands that are inspiring and also collecting records and all that sort of thing. So being in Sloan has given me the opportunity to, you know, meet a lot of people who I've admired, like whatever, interviewing Thurston Moore for Chart Magazine back in whenever that was, you know, 19, yeah. late 90s, uh, and, and, and meeting him and, um, and uh, meeting Johnny Marr like uh, a few times and having lunch with him. And, uh, you know, I was, a, I was a massive Smiths fan growing up and, and they were, Johnny Marr was a big, uh, still like my favorite guitar player. Just having, but having a real normal conversation with him, you know, at, you know, at times you're thinking like, oh my God, like it seems, it seems natural, but then you sort of switch and be like, Jesus, this is like, this is Johnny Marr that I'm sitting here at a table, like eating French fries with. And, uh, you know, and also, but trying to be cool, like not wanting to ask any questions, but then him bringing up stories of the Smiths or him making a joke about Morrissey or whatever that you had, yeah. that you hadn't heard before. It's like, Jesus. That's a, it's, it's just really a, a very, um, a wonderful side perk for me being in Sloan to, to meet and also tell, and, and Peter Buck as well. Like Peter Buck also played in the side band that opened for us on in 2005 when we were doing a bunch of shows on the West coast and uh, with the another friend five. of ours at the minus five. Yeah, uh, yeah. With another guy, Scott McCoy and Peter Buck was playing bass and uh, they were opening for us. You know what I mean? And so I remember meeting Peter, blah, blah, blah. And at the very end of the four shows or five shows, they played was like, Peter came up to me and was like, Hey man, thanks so much for letting us open for you. I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like, you know, I was such a massive fan, like every so Jesus. much, so much music that I discovered growing up. Uh, aside from Matt Murphy's older brother's record collection and from working at old Dan's was reading interviews with Peter Buck. He would talk about like, Oh, my favorite record is brighter later by Nick Drake or yeah. Check out radio city by big star. Or, uh, you know, you see a picture of him wearing a Husker do t-shirt. It's like, Oh, I got to go mm. check out that record. So, yeah. you know, I told him these things. I was like, you know, it made a big impression. He's like, Oh, that's so nice to hear. So having those kind of conversations, with somebody and and you know it's nice meeting people who are either younger than me or people who are younger who are in bands who maybe grew up with sloan and things like that who might have said a similar thing to me i i is flattering but i can also understand because i've had that very same experience and yeah, uh yeah. and so it's a very nice uh side product of, of of being in a band being able to to meet meet these people and and play shows with them and and uh and share a nice conversation. And also Johnny Marr, you know, coming, came to one of our shows in New York city and, you know, awesome. hung out with him afterwards. It's just like a, it's just a, it's, 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 yeah, it's my, I mean, it's exciting, but you know, m- mind blowing to 14 year old Jay Ferguson, like in, incomprehensible, you know? So yeah. I feel I've, I've had a charmed life, like very Cinderella story. I'm, I'm very, totally. very fortunate to be in the band Sloan and that we've lasted this long. And, uh, that I'm very fortunate that I was able to take, 
interests. There's a lot, not a lot of people who probably are able to take something that they're so interested in and, and uh, something that you love so much when you're young and turn it into a job or a career. You know what I mean? And so I feel very lucky that that's been able to happen. The, the one job that I did have in between record store jobs was I had to work is basically scared straight program. I was working on the waterfront uh, for waterfront development in Halifax in 86 or 87 for a summer. And I asked to get fired uh, on the second day. They would not fire me because my, my, uh, my dad's wife got me the job. Oh. So I couldn't quit. And uh, I worked there for a summer. It was just like manual labor, like uh, shoveling piles of gravel. Like, can you shovel that six foot pile of gravel you know, over there to, you know, seven feet over there. It was just like mindless manual labor. Uh, so that scared me straight and it made me realize, you know, like if I want to play, uh, I need a normal good job. I'd rather have a, uh, a normal job. I ended up working at Sam the Record Man after that. I'm very grateful that I got a little job there when I was at university, but it made me, uh, grateful, uh, especially in Sloan to have a job that, uh, that uh, I love very much and, and, uh, you know, would, and, and, and work and hopefully work hard to keep as well, you know? So amazing. Well, dude, this has been amazing. In closing, I, I have to ask, cause obviously we would love to, it would be a dream to have you on a gun at, at some point in the future, but with the record, you know, being like a week or so away as of this recording, uh, any, any sort of quick comments that you can uh, help us with in terms of like your songs, your contributions to the new record? As you heard on the episode that you said you listened to, <laughs> I, I think your songs are bulletproof on this one. And uh, so, yeah, yeah anything, right. anything that you'd like to <laughs> anything that you'd like to impart to the listeners who are obviously probably as of this episode already hearing it. I guess, yeah. Uh, yes, I did listen. I pre- and, and thank you very much for uh, both your your uh, kind comments on my songs and everybody's songs. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but I agree with Rob. Uh, Human Nature is uh, is my favorite song on uh, on Sloan Steady. But um, my songs, uh, she put up with what she put down. That was that's a newer song. And uh, I don't know where it really came from. The subject matter was more, there was a, speaking of a love for rock journalism, as we spoke about before, it's mainly from reading a woman who was a rock journalist in England in the 70s, who was so funny, fantastic writer, uh, so scathing, like mean, actually, <laughs> like uh, so mean to artists of the era, like whether it was... Uh, whatever, mean to like the New York Dolls, mean to the Stranglers, but so funny, but so well-written and articulate. Uh, I feel like her writing, it it made me think of a song about how someone who writes about other artists or someone who's like a a ghost writer for someone, uh, but who's actually more talented than the people that she is writing about. So that was kind of the genesis of that. That's kind of the, I took that as a small whatever genesis of an idea and made a little bit of a fictional story around someone who's a writer, but is clearly so much better than the people that she's kind of writing about. Anyhow, uh, there's that song dream it all over again was a leftover from 12. It was recorded for 12 completely, no way. but I just could not, wow. I took six weeks and I could not finish the lyrics and I was driving me crazy. Chris was very, um, uh, supportive of the song he liked it and he helped me arrange the song the chorus was actually originally the bridge 
And the guitar figure that's in it, that da, 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 was the melody for the chorus. And he was like, oh, I like that bridge. Why don't you use that as the chorus? And I was like, oh, okay. All right, fair. I was kind of giving up at that point. Uh, but I didn't finish the lyrics, and um, uh, but I finished it this time. And then so for 12, I dug out another song called The Lion's Share, which actually I, I like. Mm. I, I like melodically and lyrically and finished that song quickly and, and put that on 12. So Dream It All Over Again is, has been lingering around for the better part of four or five years. And then the last song um, of mine, um, Keep Your Name Alive, is a song that I've had since maybe the 12 or Navy Blues tour. And uh, so that's just sort of a newer one. I don't know, really know where the influence came from. The riff was a little bit more like like a late 70s kind of pub rock, rock pile style riff. And then um, uh, it's got a few different influences in it, but that, that would be a newer one as well. But uh, Dream It All Over Again definitely has been kicking around for a little while. But well, anyhow, speaking of, yeah. yeah, no, speaking of, man, uh, Word on the Street is it's going to be the next single. So that is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. We made a video for it the other night. So that sort of looks like the album cover, basically. Oh, It'll awesome. be sort of a perform- performance video using that kind of graphic similar to, you know, the Money City video or the the orange and yellow all used up video, which not many people saw or anything <laughs> like that. So it's in the, in that realm of, uh, of uh, influence, you know. Awesome. Stuff. So nice, anyhow, but no, I appreciate your kind words about the record and I'm glad that you like it. And I hope... Uh, People Love enjoy it. it. People enjoy Love it this it. time. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, guys. Yeah. yeah sure. man. Well, thank you again, man. And and Ken, if, if there's anything else you want to just add there. I'm just grateful to that that you were able to join us and regale us with your uh with your history and that, you know, I I'm one hundred percent sure that our listeners are gonna love every every little detail you weren't rambling at all this is what sloan cast is about <laughs> this was so good yeah, man cool. yeah this was so good and like i said earlier we would be honored to have you on again at some point in the future should you ever want to do it yeah um but uh, yeah man thank you so much for your time thanks for being in the greatest band ever yeah and, uh, yeah buddy and and uh, yeah congrats congrats yeah, again absolutely. on steady in the 13th album very yeah. excited about awesome thanks so much thanks for having me on i'm i'm glad to be on the second anniversary episode sorry it took me so long to be here That's but right. thank you thank oh, you for it's having apropos. No, thanks for having me. yeah that's great and also i you know i might have reiterated before but thanks for doing all these interviews because i think it makes a really uh, uh valuable document for our band so oh. thanks to you guys as well our pleasure it's a lot of fun as well yeah, it's okay. a lot of fun okay, well thanks, hey guys. listener we hope you enjoyed the show and for myself ken jay We'll catch you next time on the next episode of Sloancast. Bye, everybody. Uh-oh.